Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on, cobblestones. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. Sequin smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. When you are young, they assume you All right, that's Taylor Swift. We we may eventually go to a format on the nose where we just talk about Taylor Swift every week, because that would make it easier than deciding whether to talk about Taylor Swift, which we often do. We consume a lot of time, you know, a lot of valuable uh, human energy deciding whether to talk about Taylor Swift. So today, first of all, let me tell you some other things. Um, one of them is that uh, towards uh, the middle, towards the end of the show, something like that, we're going to talk about something we've never really talked about, which is something on uh, on the Audible platform. It's not exactly an audio book. It's a series of interlaced monologues about a family from the perspective of three different family members scattered across time. Uh, and it is the uh, brainchild uh, of Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, two writers uh, writing essays about kind of how culture might or might not respond to the uh, way in which Black Lives Matter related issues have been thrust forward uh, in the summer of 2020. You know, how do you how do you make the moment last? Uh, or is there a way in which it can be made to last in an um, important and significant way by culture? I think that's the important. Anyway, uh, but we are, we are we're sort of going to. Yeah, no, we're going to talk about Taylor Swift. Uh, but before we even do that, uh, let me tell you who's on the show today, because that's what's really important. Lucy Gelman is the uh, editor uh, of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. This is spelled S-Y-N-C. Kids, how many times do I have to tell you that? Uh, sure. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. He joins us by Skype. This is another one of our hybrid nose episodes, which I'm convinced nobody really cares about except me and Jonathan McPants, but uh, Lucy oh, is from do. our, and, yeah, and you guys great. do, yeah. Yeah, Lucy, we care a great deal. Right. So Lucy is from our New yeah. Haven crew. Bill is from we our Hartford this. crew. Uh, they, you know, back in the old days, they couldn't be on together because, you know, we were either using one studio or the other. But now we're just going crazy. We're just going nuts here. Uh, and just, uh, you know, it's not like we didn't have cars, Colin. Right. That's true. That's right. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I would hop down and drive to New Haven and grab a slice of pizza after. Right. And the farmer and the cattleman can be friends. So th that's, mm -hmm. that's good. Uh, City right. mouse, country mouse. <laughs> yes. So that, uh, so let's talk a little bit about this. I, I guess, 
I don't know whether it makes sense to actually sort of, sort of evaluate this CD or uh, uh, put it up against the backdrop of an essay that associates it with a previously undocumented subgenre called cottagecore. But I think before we get to cottagecore, Lucy, um, well, just I mean, we should say that this is called folklore. The CD is called, or the album, or whatever we're going to call it, uh, is called uh, folklore. Um, it is Taylor Swift aiming, I think, pretty directly, as the title indicates, at a little bit more of a, a folkish song sound. There are, you know, even a couple of cuts that open with almost a kind of Springsteen harmonica, you know, sound to them. Um, so um, I think I have a general sense, Lucy, of where you stand in the <laughs> the. the spectrum of Taylor Swift fandom, but how did this one work for you? I thought it was cute. Um, I, I thought it was cute. I thought it was an extremely average album. Um, it's not an album that I would come to on my own. It's also not something that um, like pains me to listen to. I think it's better than the bulk of what Taylor Swift has been doing for the last three or four years. Um, so so I, th I think it's an entirely pleasant album that uh that i would not pick up off the shelf or i guess more likely uh would not buy off the internet if left to my own devices let me just before i go to bill let me just press on you a little bit about this and say sure um do you think i know this is an impossible thing to know but imagine that this album were released by i don't know uh, Doris Bridgers, Phoebe Bridgers, a younger sister or something, and she'd never put out an album before, and this was the album. I mean, I'm just sort of wondering how much Taylor Swift suffers from the weight mm. of being Taylor Swift. I mean, obviously, it's a tremendous stepladder for all the people who like Taylor Swift and are eager to embrace her output. But there's a mm. whole bunch of other people who, you know, there's a way in which she's already got two strikes on her uh, at the plate. Oh, okay. Uh, so that... I, I will say that is entirely fair. Um, I, I guess where I would push back is saying if uh, someone, so also like this question of, of folklore and more widely like bluegrass and everything that's happening, there is a lot of really good music out there. And I don't think this is it. Like if you listen to the lyrics, the lyrics are sort of dopey. Um, whereas <laughs> like this, this isn't, she isn't a Layla McCullough, right? Yeah. Um, she isn't uh, Rhiannon Givens. Like, like that's not what you're going to get from Taylor Swift. Maybe it never was. It, it definitely never was. Um, but, but I think because of that, like, why life is short? Why, uh, why spend you know time listening to Taylor Swift when you could be listening to other women who are ten times as talented and, and make a fraction of the money, right? Right. Well, I mean, Bill, I, and I'm, I'm sure you've got all, all kinds of things you're primed to say, but I just one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and Lucy's uh, triggering it now for me, is it's sort of that question of can pop, pop music be profound? Well, absolutely it can. Does it have to be profound? You know, I mean, I, I think Taylor Swift writes really terrific, catchy little, uh, see, I just did the same thing as Lucy. She said cute, I said catchy little. Uh, but she writes these songs that are very enjoyable to have on your car radio. Um, and, and you sort of wonder wh whether we're asking too much, or maybe she's asking too much of herself in insisting on a kind of depth. Yeah. You know, I might be the wrong person to talk about. <laughs> no, but this isn't going to go where you think it's going to go, though. Okay. I don't think. Um, I might be the wrong person to talk about her lyrics, because mm -hmm. this is something my wife and I often uh, have conversations about. 
lyrics in music really, I, I don't, most of the time I don't pay that much attention to them. Mm-hmm. I'm much more a sound person. I'm much more about the sound of the music. So I don't, I don't actually know if Taylor Swift's songs are profound or not because I really don't pay that much attention to what she's trying to say. So in terms of the sound though, and this is what might be unexpected for you, I actually do like her sound quite a bit, which people who know me would be surprised to hear that because I'm into all this really uh, out there and experimental. I like groups with names like Porcupine Tree (laughs) and, you know, uh, Real Group, by the way, they're fantastic. You should check them out. Um, And yet there's something about her sound that, it kind of sneaks up on me. I spent all morning listening to uh, folklore because it's not something I had listened to before we, I knew we were going to talk about it today. And like Lucy, I, I probably wouldn't have sought it out, but the more I listen to it, the more I like it. And she does kind of get in there with me. Um, it's kind of, okay, this is weird, but it's kind of like an herbal tea of an album. It's, Mm. it goes down really easy. It's enjoyable. It's melodic. Um, She did work this time with a guy named Aaron Dessner, who's in a group called the national that I actually do like a lot. And that group has kind of this brooding kind of sound. And I feel like that brooding aesthetic can be heard in this album as well. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if her lyrics are profound in any way, but I do know she's a great singer and she does have like this really melodic sense that ends up with me working most of the time. I just would like to say right now, I, I want this show to be over so I can go on Facebook and watch Bill's friends make fun of him for uh, revealing his secret passion for uh, Taylor Swift and the fact that he... Spreads, oh, and they spreads, will relentlessly. Spreads, yes, start doing that now, friends of Bill Usman. So all those music snob fans yeah. that I have. Yeah, all the yeah. doilies that you spread out mm-hmm. and the, the, the little fairy mm-hmm. spoons and stuff. So, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> which, I, yeah, can I interject yes. here? Yes. So, so Bill, what I'm hearing from you, I'm hearing two different two different things. One, I think it's it's uh, unjust for you to shortchange the national in this conversation because they are on another like metaphysical plane uh, from Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, so, so that's one thing. But, but another thing is, I think that I like this album may work for you and for me as a product of this moment in which you're seeking comfort in some way, shape, or form. Is that is that fair? I, that, I, I, I actually, think that play, that sort of plays into this. We should say there, there, there's this essay that Jonathan McPants had us read about uh, a supposed subgenre. I don't. I think it's made up, but uh, called cottagecore. And Bill, that's sort of what Lucy's kind of talking about. This notion of seaside cottages. Although, actually, if you do listen to the lyrics of some of these songs, they're a little less comforting than the music sounds. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, maybe maybe you are a little bit more open to something less disturbing than the national or porcupine tree. Yeah, although I, I, I can deal with them both. In fact, when we get 
to the endorsements later on, I actually have two albums that I want to endorse, one which is very, very soothing and comforting, and one which is um, in some ways kind of the opposite of that. Um, but there is definitely something about this album for folklore that does, I agree with you, Lucy, work in this moment in particular when maybe you just feel like you need a lot of herbal tea. Right. No, I should say, and so, Kat, let's get ready to play uh, A2, and then we'll circle back to A1, because I know Lucy has something she wants to say about this. But to me, one of the problems for Taylor Swift, I think, in trying to do an album called Folklore, which not only implies a kind of an acoustic sound, but also some kind of, I don't know, conversancy with, you know, American folk traditions and oral traditions and whatever, is that, you know, I mean, because she's very successful, she's led a somewhat cosseted uh, lifestyle driven by celebrity entanglements. Uh, and so when she writes a song, she often has to get a little distance from herself to do it. Uh, so here is a song called The Last Great American Dynasty, which is very explicitly about Taylor Swift's rather impressive house uh, uh, in Watch Hill. But rather than be about Taylor Swift and her house, it's about the woman who used to own it. Rebecca rode up on the afternoon train. It was sunny. Her salt box house on the coast took a mind off St. Louis. Bill was the heir to the Standard Oil name and money And the town said how did a middle class divorce do it The wedding was charming if a little gauche There's only so far new money goes They picked out a home and called it Holiday House Their parties were tasteful if a little loud doctor had told him to settle down it must have been her fault his heart gave out and they said there goes the last great american dynasty So this is the story, and actually, it actually is the historic story of a woman who owned this house uh, in in Watch Hill. Um, although, you know, I mean, I guess Lucy, at a time when Americans are suffering economically <laughs> and wondering if they're going to get another twelve hundred dollar stimulus check or whether their six hundred dollar unemployment is ever going to come back, it's hard. It's hard to be a person of the people, you know, uh, and and write a tune about your house in Watch Hill. Yeah, you know, I was I was listening to it and it, unemployment in New Haven is up a thousand percent from what it was last year. So let that sink in. And and so it just that. Yeah, it, it didn't work for me. And Bill, I believe is this the song that your wife likes? Are you provide? Are yeah. you prepared to uh, to break yes, the quarantine absolutely. of your family? No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Jonathan had asked for a nomination uh for a song to play that what isn't one of the singles mm -hmm. and so in the way that i always do i went hey lore um could you help me out with this <laughs> and she mentioned this song the um the last great american dynasty again because i don't pay that much attention to the lyrics <laughs> i'm admitting a weakness here um <laughs> it it works for me as as music there's a certain there's a certain wistfulness to her sound that I really like 
And when I do pay attention to the lyrics, definitely that the wistfulness of the sound is echoed in the lyrics or the other way around. Uh, but there is something about that, you know, that, that I do like even admitting like how to out of touch it really may be from the current moment that we're in. Right. And I do think, first of all, that, you know, look, a lot of the, her music has a very sugary kind of pop sound to it. But I, I think that's totally defensible. I mean, there, there has to be music that you can be driving along with your granddaughter mm-hmm. in the back seat, you know, who's eight years old or something and getting into pop music. And the two of you can kind of sing along to it and hum along to it mm-hmm. and everything. And it, it doesn't really have to be. Uh, there's other music doing other jobs. And I think sometimes the mistake we make is, in, is to insist, you know, that that everything do the same job. It's this comes up a lot when we do our song of the summer show that some some music exists to be a common denominator, not the lowest common denominator, but a common denominator. And I think that's, you know, th- that's often the way music like this works. Um, and I say this living in a house with somebody who really does like Taylor Swift a lot, but also likes being able to sing along with her granddaughter in the backseat. So I mean, this is, anyway, let me just move on here. We can't spend all day about Taylor Swift, although God knows we would love to. But um, there are ways in which Taylor Swift is constantly teasing us with her own attitudes about gender. Who is she really? What's her sexuality all about? Um, and uh, the song Betty is another example of this. I won't make assumptions about why you switched your homeroom, but I think it's cause of me. Betty, one time I was riding on my skateboard when I passed your house. It's like I couldn't breathe. You heard the rumors from Inez. You can't believe a word she says most times, but this time it was true. The worst. That I ever did was what I did to you. But if I just showed up at your party, and I'm not really sure Inez knows that she has that reputation, but um, so Inez must be really pissed off right now. Yeah, well, Jesse Eisenberg is writing an album entirely from her point of view. (laughs) So, um, so Lucy, you were the one who got to flag this song. uh, So, go ahead. Oh, it's I, I I will say of of all of the releases from the album, this may be my favorite one uh, because I I kind of agree. So Vulture ran an article either earlier this week or last week called "Betty Can Be As Gay As You Want It To Be," and I kind of love it because there there were all of these debates spinning around, and um, partly because because I teach high schoolers, I have fallen down this Reddit rabbit hole, um, and and there are debates uh, swirling around on Reddit and like. So many different people have tried to claim Betty for for themselves or for an affinity group of which they are a member, um, and and I feel like in some ways Betty is one. It's it's fluid, which I like, um, even though she said it's from the perspective of a, a teenage boy. Um, but two, I feel like Betty is almost an apology or a recognition of the what I, I thought was a train wreck in the song, You Need to Calm Down Last Year, which I really f- 
felt was way over the top, kind of exploited a moment and exploited a lot of LGBTQ plus um, emotional and intellectual labor for the artist's own profit. Um, and, and so I feel like this, this has a different feeling. Um, I like it. I also hope that it's not her capitalizing on a moment. Um, yeah, but, but I find it charming. Like it, if, if there is a, a thing as such a thing as like fluid cottage core, maybe this falls into it. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like something you keep in your refrigerator somehow. You <laughs> have, have a little fluid cottage core yeah. with some pineapple slices too. So, um, yeah. So Bill, quick thought about this uh, and then we actually have to move on. I thought that was interesting too. Uh, Lucy actually directed me to that, that article on Vulture, which I thought was really good. It's by somebody named Madison Malone Kircher. And if I could just read like uh, two sentences from it that I thought made sense. She writes, queer baiting is creating art specifically for queer people, art that targets us for our clicks, our views, and our dollars. Allyship is creating art where we're just naturally part of the narrative. With folklore, mm -hmm. Swift finally gets it right. So Madison Malone Kircher did feel like this. there's something there in this, which I liked too. All right. Um, my dog Declan is in the beginning. He does not agree with that. Um, all right. So we're going to take a quick um, uh, break here, I think, uh, so we can have a little bit of time to talk about something that we really should probably talk about for two hours. And we're going to do it in 10 minutes. And then we're going to talk about the Jesse Eisenberg thing. So here we go. So one or two perspicacious uh, listeners to the show, I'm guessing it was Alex Dubin and Helder uh, Mira, uh, probably thought, wait a minute, that was the end music to the Maltese Falcon. Why did they just play that? Well, because we're about to talk about the <laughs> because we're about to talk about the Maltese Falcon. That's why. Not exactly, but we are going to talk about an essay by Richard Russo uh, in The Atlantic uh, and also an essay by Wesley Morris in The New York Times. Uh, we're going to have to kind of speed date through this, so we'll have time for the other things. But uh, each one looks from a different perspective at the question of how do you preserve whatever momentum or uh, elevated sense of consciousness uh, that, that came about this summer through the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, through the uh, tragedy of George Floyd and others. What do you do? And so uh, Russo begins with the idea, and, and he brings up this kind of uh, side character, this little uh, anecdote from the Maltese Falcon about a man named Flitcraft who um, disappears because, in fact, he almost is killed by a falling girder or beam or something, and he decides he has to he has to change his whole life. And when he's reloc when he's discovered later, having left his old life, his new life looks pretty much like his old life uh, because that's what people do. Uh, meanwhile, Wesley Morris is making an argument in the New York Times for the creation of some kind of cultural moment that points at these things. So points at these questions creates uh, a sense of truth and re reconciliation in a very kind of um, hyper-directed way. Um, I hope I'm summarizing that argument correctly, but Bill, uh, you, I'm sure you can do a better job uh, than I did. So uh, in, in a way that's probably unfair to both of these pieces, what did you make of them? So I think the Richard Russo piece speaks to something real and important that 
I've been thinking about too, which is that, yes, like all of a sudden it seems you're seeing Black Lives Matter signs pop up everywhere and you're seeing massive, massive protests, like unlike anything we've really seen in our country before. And these are multicultural, multi-gendered, multi-generational protests but is this lasting or is this something that you know once we get past the 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 pandemic if we ever get past the pandemic and people start to get back to their normal routines and some other stories come in and we forget about some of this stuff does anything really significantly change or do we just go back to you know our 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 daily kind of checked out unaware existence that we had before you know seemingly overnight we all became woke i think that's a really important question and then wesley morris in his own way is dealing with this as as well because what he's arguing for is that we, as a nation, we need a massive truth and reconciliation moment. And how do you reach the, the, the vast majority of people? Well, you reach the vast majority of people through media and culture. So he's really calling for something um, that takes over our television screens and takes over our social media feeds for an extended period of time and involves all different types of culture, nonfiction, documentary, reporting, but also dance and art and music and comedy. And would that be something that that would make this lasting instead of just a momentary uh, blip on the radar? So there are connections between these two pieces. I think both of them leave many more questions unanswered then they do provide like any real solutions. I know Colin, you, you in particular felt like Wesley Morris was calling for something too centrally controlled or not spontaneous or didactic. Um, and I, I, I think that's a legitimate question to that, whether you can engineer something like that or whether as you said it has to emerge more organically so lucy where are you on all this yeah um well i i want to spend more time i'm totally team morris um but but i think i'm team morris because he leaves an opening so really quickly i want to say when i when i read the richard russo which i think raises a good like there's a kernel of something in there um but I read this essay by a white man using the Maltese Falcon as a framing device. And I thought, wow, that's a huge red flag for me. And, and it raised the, the question of who is this essay for? Um, and I, I will say often I ask that question while reading The Atlantic and I continue to read it. So make of that what you may. Um, but, but I think what Russo gets right and what is, what is a conclusion one can draw from the Morris piece is that there needs to be a paradigm shift and it is in how white folks, but also philanthropic institutions um, and sort of members of the nonprofit industrial complex and government entities are thinking about funding the movement going forward. 
So I, I think that's um, the opening that Morris sort of leaves that I was really interested in, in thinking about more critically. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, the only thing that I would say about this, and I think Bill has summarized my thoughts pretty accurately, that, you know, I mean, culture only really works organically. You can't take out a prescription pad and say, you know what we need? We need a musical about Alexander Hamilton where like all of these uh, you know, <laughs> iconic figures from the American Revolution are people of color and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I mean, that, that either is going to happen or it won't, you know, and just in the same sense. And he does a kind of call back to Roots when, and points out that nobody thought Roots was going to be popular. Mm -hmm. They thought, you know, it was just going to fill a little bit of time on ABC, you know, and then it was this huge thing. And, and that, you know, things that that change us and motivate us and and get to us they're the work of individual artists or collections of artists who are just doing what they're doing because that's what they feel inspired to do but i don't think you can write up a game plan very easily or set it up as some kind of protocol and that was my i mean yes there does there need to be something like that yes but i think you you risk driving people away if you say well, we're going to do 50% of all programming for the next 12 months to these kinds of questions, and you're going to like it. <laughs> you know, I just, but, I, but I think, like, so in the most successful models that I've seen doing this, they just do the work, right? right. Um, and, and so I think to a certain degree, this, this goes back to money, like the question of who has the money and, and how are they distributing the money? Because, Colin, I agree to a certain extent, like the best art is organic, However, um, when, when you're looking at how funding is distributed, if you say, well, we're going to just distribute organically, or we're going to distribute based on the projects and the people who are applying to these grants, um, you know, to apply for a, a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, you have to do like a zillion pages of paperwork. Hmm. And then for the amount of money you get, you have to do a report that's disproportionately large. So if you have three people working at your nonprofit and you're doing a project about, I don't know, arts and land sovereignty in neighborhoods that have been historically redlined, um, you're, you're not going to have the resources to apply to that grant. Right. So, I, I so do that's where that I say... Yeah, I, I do think that, shift that, that the narrative. it does. First of all, I, I agree with everything. I think that's what the NEA should be for, you know, is is, in fact, to fund narratives that aren't otherwise gaining our attention. I think that's a little bit uh, different from what Morris is talking about. Um, but in any case, I'm getting a signal from the producer saying we have to move on uh, or Jesse Eisenberg will be so, so upset with us. <laughs> so, um, so because yes, it's one thirty seven, it's one thirty seven. That exactly. It's one thirty seven. And right. now. Right. That's a that's a Jesse Eisenberg joke, which you you will maybe understand a little bit better if we uh, play uh, the, our, our first clip uh, from this uh, thing, which is sort of a book. It's a podcast. It's sort of a three act play. It's interlinked monologues. It's only for your ears. It's not for your eyes. It's called When You Finish Saving the World. Let's hear a little bit uh, of a clip B1 cat. This is Nathan played by Jesse Eisenberg of all people. Feelings. 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 What am I feeling? Hmm. I... I like the baby. Ziggy. <laughs> or, I mean, I don't not like it. I'm not sure. I, I don't want to force a relationship onto a six-month-old baby. It has to come naturally, right? And he and Rachel had, like, nine months more than me to get to know each other. Sometimes I feel like being a father is like starting a race three laps behind the mother, but being expected to cross the finish line at the same time. When I voiced this interesting analogy to Rachel, she said that I shouldn't be thinking of parenting as a competition. 
And I guess she's right, but I did want to be complimented for the analogy, which is probably why I'm telling you, Dr. Lawner. I don't know. Feelings. Hmm. Oh, this is stupid. I... I don't have any right now. Yeah. Sorry, this is so stupid. So that's Jesse Eisenberg uh, playing Nathan. Uh, I'll just quickly sketch it out. These are three different narratives. We hear first from Nathan, who's a guy who, you know, is not maybe fully armed with uh, the full set of emotions, perceptions, uh, empathies, but who's also... There's something very winning about his desire to, to do better at that. We, lay, we hear next from Ziggy, the baby. The baby grows up to be essentially if Taylor Swift and uh, Kanye West could be merged into one high school student. Uh, uh, so that's what we get with Ziggy. We, and then at the end, we hear from the young Rachel, the, the Rachel before she married Nathan, before she had the baby Ziggy. Uh, so these are three interlinked stories in that way. And uh, so, yeah, Bill, I mean, maybe get us started here. What did you think of this thing? I liked it a lot. Um, when Jonathan first uh, told us that this is what we were going to be doing, honestly, my first thought was um, five hours <laughs> with no visuals. What am I going to do with my eyes? <laughs> what, what am I going to look at? Because I, I'm... I think I'm very visually oriented and I haven't gotten into audiobooks because I like to hold a book in my hand and look at the words on the page. I do listen to podcasts, but with podcasts, what I usually do is I'm doing something else at the same time. Like I'm driving or I'm walking or I'm cleaning or I'm doing something like that. So, but I gave myself over to this and I really got into it. I think the, the creation of it, both in the way it's written and in the way it's performed, um, it drew me in and I think it's a really kind of cool story. And I like the three different perspectives coming at us from three different time periods. The first part is kind of in our present moment and the second part is in 2032. Uh, so there's some kind of like interesting little science fiction elements to that. Uh, and then the last part is in 2002. So we already know what's coming in this woman's Rachel's life, but she doesn't. And so all of that worked for me pretty well. Uh, how about you, Lucy? Yeah, it um, it worked for me. I will say... The beginning, so Jesse Eisenberg does the Jesse Eisenberg thing in this. It is very much a, a product of who he is. He sort of does one character and he does it really well. Um, and, and for me, that took a, a little moment to think, okay, I'm, I'm in here and I'm doing this and I don't have visuals like Bill. Um, but, but I will say once I got into it, I really thought it was worth listening to. I was into the story. I was into the multiple um, perspectives and, uh, you know, spoiler alert to nobody, history repeats itself. And you hear that over and over again in this story, which is sort of mm -hmm. fun and, and interesting and apropos for the moment. 
Yeah, there's. I mean, just as an example, uh, and I'm sure you guys all caught different ones, but um, at the beginning, Nathan, the Jesse Eisenberg character, talks about how the government should pay happy couples. They should, mm-hmm. they should give people who've had a great mm-hmm. first date some kind of stipend because it's good for the world uh, if people are happy and if people are in relationships that 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 you know that make them happier and more productive and better people. And then his son, who has repudiated him in every single manner possible, and who has turned his back on everything that his father stands for says essentially almost exactly the same thing but worded in 2032 slang um so yeah i I don't first of all i should say i listen to way more audiobooks i think than than either one of the guests uh and um you know so this was a little less novel for me um and the shifting perspectives could, were sort of jarring too. You kind of fall in love with, or you you learn to accept uh, some character, and then suddenly you're off in a different place. But um, but yeah. So I, I, I let me just Lucy. I'm just going to have you just talk a little yeah. bit more about this because the other thing is this is very much a conversation about conflicting value sets that mm-hmm. is not entirely different, maybe even from the Taylor Swift conversation that we have. Do you do things for money? Do you do things for love? To what degree does your determination to be a good person define you um i I don't know did you wind up with any kind of particular takeaway uh, at the end of this no uh i I mean i I think it's extremely human like i i as i was listening i thought wow this is very human and i think i i progressively reached that point at the beginning i thought oh i don't know if i like this i mean the the beginning is there's a very mansplainy character and that was hard for me because that is my like i listen to men tell me (laughs) Uh, what they think is going on all day, every single day. I'm used to it. I live in a country where that happens. Um, but but I think there is a really interesting exploration of different value sets. And there's a really beautiful moment in the second part where you you sort of hear, actually in, in all of the parts, you hear characters think through something um, and it gets kind of uh, dirty for them or, or they get into the nitty gritty of it. And, um, and, and I actually thought it was really, without giving anything away, when Ziggy is working through something and you see this breakthrough moment that actually I, I thought was extremely tender, um, that, that sort of won me over. We should say that two of the three monologues are essentially therapy sessions or a series of therapy sessions, one of them with a living therapist, and in the case of Ziggy in 2032 uh, with a bot um, that he becomes very, very interactive with. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Finn Wolfhard as the voice of Ziggy. This is B2 Cat. Uh, this is my first session, I guess. I mean, I've never been sentenced to counseling before. I'm literally like the last person anyone would expect to be here. I have zero negs all through school. Zero negs. So, I just want to say first off, this is totally chalky, okay? (laughs) I guess you probably hear that from everyone, right? I'm innocent, right? Well, I'm not saying I'm innocent, I just think counseling is stupid and does no one any good. I mean, I guess I just don't care what a bot has to say about my precious mental state. My friend Marco had to do counseling last year and he told me all about it. It was after he shut off the appliances in Miss Jenkins' house. She was brimmed too, it was so lift. Marco used to do it to me and I thought it was funny. It's like an obvious reboot, too. Miss Jenkins is just so old, she doesn't even know how to reboot her own house. It's like, maybe you should move into universal housing if you can't even reboot your own house. Marco was doing her a favor, in my opinion, showing her the obvious security flaws in her house. He should have gotten pause points, not negs. But instead he had to come to counseling for like eight sessions, which is like a death sentence. I better not have to come for eight. So, Bill, I have to say, I couldn't stand this kid for 
for, <laughs> for most of this segment. And, and as Lucy suggests, he ultimately uh, makes quite a bit of progress. Uh, we could debate whether or not his epiphanies seem genuine or forced. Uh, but um, but I mean, this in a way, one of the qualities of this thing is all three of these narrators are acquired tastes. Uh, I think yeah. uh, the Jesse Eisenberg character is, you know, whiny in a way that we're very familiar with, as Lucy suggests, from other Jesse Eisenberg performances. And this kid is obnoxious. Uh, and and even Rachel, you know, the most naturally appealing uh, of these people is a little bit. Well, she's a college student, you know, who is mm -hmm. feeling her way through to to something, but we have to go through a lot of nothing with her to get there. That wasn't really a question. Yeah, that's okay. Because because that was fine. Because I think that the Colin McIntyre show is really lift, and it's it's Tara lift, and it's not chalky at all, except. Well, maybe that episode about towels was kind of chalky, but normally it's really lift. Yeah, um, that is something that I think is true, that one of the strengths of this is that each character does kind of change a little bit during the hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes that you spend with them. I, I agree that like I did not like um ziggy much at all ziggy is like a, just a little capitalist pig uh who is just about as obnoxious as teenagers can be but you see him struggling with himself and and, and growing and developing same thing happens with uh nathan at the beginning where you know he just is someone who is very difficult to relate to because he himself, as he finally comes to admit, has a really hard time making connections to other people. And as Lucy said, in, in kind of that person that Jesse Eisenberg plays a lot, but they do grow and they do develop. Each section has its own very different tone I really liked the first section because of the humor of it. There are lots of aspects to it that I found either intentionally or uh, unintentionally very, very funny. And then the last section with Rachel, I think brings a whole new and for me kind of unexpected, but really welcome dimension to it. And I think the actor, Caitlin Deaver, who plays Rachel does a really good job with showing how young people change when they go to college. And because you know what's coming in her life and she doesn't, there's a real poignancy to that last section, which I thought was very, very good. All right. So Lucy Gilman, you get the uh, last word on this. Oh, I, I would say that's very fair. Again, not unlike the Richard Russo essay, I did ask myself as I was listening the question, who is this for? Who, and, and I don't know that, that it's for everyone. Um, but I also would say, you know, give this a listen if you too would not like to uh, have to go back to your high school self and have a conversation with them or, um, or for that matter, your college self. I would not like to go back to my high school self personally. I'm very happy that she's in the past. <laughs> 
All right. The project's called When You Finish Saving the World. I will quickly say I was glad that we did this because audio books are nice. You can store them right on your phone. So if you don't have Internet uh, yet, if your you know, power's not back yet or whatever, or your Internet's not back yet, just you go over to the public library and make sure it gets downloaded on the, <laughs> onto, onto your phone. And then you've got it there. You can take it home to your dark, lifeless house and still listen to it as long as you can keep your phone charged somehow. Uh, anyway, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more of Lucy and Bill and some recommendations. All right, we are back. This is the nose with us. Uh, are in fact Bill Usman and Lucy Gelman. Um, uh, Bill is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University, uh, and uh, Lucy Gelman is editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. We're going to make some recommendations to you right now. Uh, so, Bill, what have you got for us? So, I hinted earlier uh, about a couple albums that I want to talk about. Uh, music is really, really helping me cope with this very depressing time that we're living in, but in lots of different ways. So two new albums, uh, quickly, uh, one is from a group called Yo Latengo, uh, which is kind of an experimental rock group. Their new album is only five songs, but they're longish of minimalist ambient kind of instrumental guitar percussion uh electronic kind of droning like something from a brian eno or robert fripp and that album is called we have amnesia sometimes great title and then very very different there's a singer named leanne lahavis who has a new album out and it's just called Leanne Lahavis, even though it's not her first album. It's probably my favorite album of the year. Uh, growing up in the 1960s, I want to just call this album soul music, but it's not really retro, and it's got lots of gospel and folk and jazz influences. And believe it or not, there's an amazing cover of a song by Radiohead and called Weird Fishes. And... The last two minutes of that song are some of the most transcendent music that I've heard in a really, really long time. So that's uh, Leanne Lahavis, and the album is just called Leanne Lahavis. All right, uh, Lucy Gelman, what have you got for us? Yeah, um, I have too. So music has also been really a, a sell for me during this time, and I wanted to recommend Chad Brown Springer, who has. I think been discussed on the show before actually, but they are the front man to the band uh, Fat Astronaut and they have new music out, including a single called Lakeside that does some really sonically um, beautiful and interesting work, um, sort of mushing styles together. Um, so highly, highly recommend Lakeside by Chad Brown Springer and, and also just their work generally. Um, and then the it's a uh, young adult Afrofuturist um, fiction by uh, Awaki Emeze, uh, Emezi, sorry, and um, it, it's called Pet, P-E-T, like like a dog that you have, pet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really good, and I would argue that young adult novels are for everyone. They're not just for young adults, but if you're an adult and you want to check their work out, um, they also have an adult novel called Freshwater. 
And say the um, name of the musical artist that you mentioned, just so if people uh, missed it the first time around. So it's Chad Brown Springer, and it's uh, it's all lower. Their moniker is all lowercase. Okay. Chad Brown Springer. I, I really like Fat Astronauts, so I'm yeah. um, I'm intrigued to hear about this. Um, so I thought I would sort of try to stay a little bit uh, with uh, some of the themes that came up today. Um, so one of them is uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, if you've never seen the end of the tour, which is in which Jesse Eisenberg plays this kind of Weasley uh, journalist who's, although not entirely Weasley, uh, who is trying to interview David Foster Wallace, um, uh, played by Jason Siegel. Um, it's it is like it's another one of those Jesse Eisenberg performances. But the whole movie is terrific. Um, I mean, at least it's very terrific in the sense that it, it's interested in a lot of things that I'm interested in, which maybe makes me an unreliable witness. I actually saw it in a movie theater and then I stood up and I looked around and I saw some people I knew in the audience and I said, is that a good movie or is it just like a movie that they made just for me? <laughs> uh, and the other people said, no, actually, it was a really good movie. So there you go. Uh, and then, you know, if you did want to discover audiobooks, which once again are great during a power outage because the book sits on your it sits inside your phone. All you need to do is keep your phone going. You don't need an internet. You need an internet connection to download the book, but then you're done. Um, I would recommend The Yiddish Policeman's Union uh, by Michael Chabon, uh, which is uh, read by Peter Riegert. It's just a terrific performance. But for some of the themes that we've been talking about uh, in terms of the Wesley Morris piece uh, and other stuff, uh, I would recommend uh, American War uh, by, let's see, Omar El Akan. Is that how you say it? Say it? Uh, it's a terrific book. The audio version of, of it is really good. Uh, and Underground Airlines by... Uh, um, by Ben Winters, uh, also really terrific, also uh, about all those themes. And you know, the great thing, the other great thing about audiobooks is, yeah, you can be, you can cook dinner and be listening to parentheses, reading sort of a book. Anyway, thanks so much to everybody who helped out today, and especially to our terrific panelists, uh, Bill Usman and Lucy Gelman. We will be back with a brand new Scramble on Monday. Thanks to everybody who listened. Talk about everything as a matter about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah